Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar. Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It is a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That powers your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I'm excited to talk about resilient leadership and how to cultivate greatness, both in our personal lives and our professional lives. There is no doubt that in 2020, resilient leadership has been tested in the most extreme conditions with COVID-19, and the challenges continue. The crisis has taken a toll on organizations and individuals. The combination of resilience and resourcefulness truly packs a powerful punch to not only navigate the crisis, but to transform the crisis into breakthroughs that can build long-term success for companies and their employees. Resilience is a crucial characteristic for high-performing leaders, and leaders must cultivate it in themselves and their teams in order to thrive. My guest today knows all about the importance of listening, learning, and leading to unleash the power of resilient leadership in transforming teams and organizations, enabling them to emerge stronger, and better than they were before. I am thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Ruba Borno. Ruba Borno is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Global Customer Experience Centers at Cisco, or CX. Global CX Centers delivers the full portfolio of Cisco support and professional services, including tech support, professional services, managed services, customer success, global spare parts, and repair logistics. She's got a big, big job. And she's held numerous roles at Cisco including three years as vice president of growth initiatives and the chief of staff to the CEO. Yes, I said the chief of staff to the CEO, where she worked across the executive leadership team to develop Cisco's growth and transformation strategy. In this capacity, she helped to reshape the company's strategic business planning processes in support of Cisco's digital transformation and that of its partners and customers. Before joining Cisco in 2015, Ruba was a principal at the Boston Consulting Group and a leader in two practice groups, technology media and telecommunications and people and organization. In this capacity, she co-authored articles including Break Up or Shake Up, Get Ready for the Technology Industry Revolution, and Technology Companies, Putting People First. I had the pleasure of getting to know Ruba um, during her time as chief of staff to the CEO of Cisco, Chuck Robbins. Um, We were in similar roles at the time as I was the chief of staff to the CEO at Intel. And we met at an event in Silicon Valley, and we have been friends ever since. She is simply amazing. And I am so excited to share her with you today. Let's welcome Ruba. Welcome, Ruba. 
Hi, Lakeisha. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me and I was just sharing with the audience earlier that we met in the Valley and we have been connected ever since. You're such a source of inspiration for me. Just what you've been able to do, not only in your corporate career, but just your impact just globally, right? World Economic Forum leader. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So, I mean, I'm just so thrilled to share you with the audience. So let's just launch right in. You ready to go? I'm really excited. And Lakeisha, likewise, so glad we've uh, continued to stay in touch since our uh, chief of staff route. Absolutely. Well, listen, I know all about you. Let's just kind of give you a little bit of an opportunity to talk to the audience and tell us a little bit about who you are. So I'm going to just kick off by saying, tell us a bit about your background, where you're from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up or your biggest motivators? Thank you. I, you know, I think my background absolutely directly ties to how I lead and, and everything that I have have done. I'm personally motivated. I know two key factors is education and learning and empowerment. And I I came to the United States as a refugee from the first Gulf War. My parents had three days to decide whether they would bring four daughters to the United States. At the time, Saddam Hussein said anyone harboring U.S. citizen would be shot on sight. My sister was American. And so the U.S. actually brought us as uh, refugees and having political asylum. It was a really big moment because my parents left everything. All they had was their integrity, their education, and their work ethic. And that's just what allowed them to reestablish our lives, luckily, in the United States. And frankly, that has just been instilled in me that an understanding that your education, your integrity, and your family are really all we have and all we need. And that ethos of education, integrity, and family still influences the way I lead every day. So I would say that probably my first influences in life are my parents for having the courage to do that and role model that for me. And that that fuels me every single day. Wow. Absolutely. I can only imagine. So glad that that you were able to transition to the U.S. and and safely and just kind of reestablish your lives. I'm sure it wasn't easy to begin with, but to your point, that firm foundation of family, education, and, and, and of course, integrity. Talk a little bit more about maybe what did you learn from the stories of their refugee experience, your refugee experience, and really how did that shape you and your sisters? Well, it's, I think the biggest thing that it did for us is that we learned that our parents sacrificed a lot to give us an opportunity. And so, frankly, I think for me and all of my sisters that we feel an obligation that when we have an opportunity to really take advantage of it and we have a responsibility to, to reach our potential and work really hard and and do the best job that we can. But more importantly, it's also that, you know, if we climb a ladder to leave that ladder so that others can climb up as well and give others the opportunity and a chance to reach their potential as well. I love that. I love that. So awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, as you climb, you, you lift others, as you climb, you lift your hand back, as you climb, you articulate the path that it took for you to get there to bring others along. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's something that I think is, is, is a responsibility that any leader has. And frankly, it's a joy. I think leaders don't get where they are by themselves. It really requires collaboration. It requires helping others achieve their potential. I look good when my team does a great job and when they look good. <laughs> so it isn't just about individual accomplishment, but certainly about a collective team and, and how they perform. So it is mutually beneficial to help others succeed. And so it's not just an opportunity and an obligation to be able to help others reach their potential, but, but frankly, it it just continues to, to support me 
support my team and that continues to greater outcomes for both of us. Love it. And I know you can to that point. I mean, you you have always been a person that has invested in, in others and the community around you to empower them to, to reach their full potential. Talk about some of the things that you, you were passionate about. I know you did a lot of pro bono work during your time at BCG. Yes. So it's interesting. I actually didn't reflect on this until, you know, a few years ago where nearly every pro bono effort I had uh, been involved in, both at BCG and, and before that was tied to education. So I can talk about the ones at the Boston Consulting Group specifically. So Boston Consulting Group is a management consulting firm. We obviously do quite a bit of commercial and, and public sector work, but there are also these projects that we do as pro bono work that are completely given for free to nonprofit organizations and are tied to the passions of the consulting team. And all of mine were tied to education. So one of them was actually with the United Way of the Bay Area and their MatchBridge program, which is an empirical training program to help disenfranchised youth get trained so that they can then get a job immediately rather than struggle in terms of a longer term schooling process. So it was tying education directly to a job focused on youth that's disenfranchised. Then it was City Year of uh, Silicon Valley, which is an organization that provides educators to schools and underprivileged communities, and it's supplemental educators to help teachers support the students. And it has changed lives of these students and supported their families. And then the last one is Rocket Ship Education, which not only is focused on lower economic communities, but what's interesting is they were using technology to actually scale first-rate education curriculum to those communities that it otherwise wouldn't get to it. And the work that we did with Rocket Ship was actually a growth strategy, seeing that there, there are many communities around the United States that could utilize this model. So what are the communities that they should go after first and have a high likelihood of success and, and deliver impact and close the achievement gap between those in higher income communities and those that are in lower income communities through technology-powered education? So it's just been you know incredible to focus on, on education and Interestingly, you know, joining Cisco, we have a Cisco Networking Academy organization that has trained millions of engineers, helping them get a certification that leads to a job. And I'm just proud that not only is that an organization that Cisco supports, but my team actually heavily recruits from that organization as well. So constantly tied to education. I think in the year 2021, as automation continues to grow in every industry, we have a responsibility to educate and develop our talent. So that is one of the key themes of, of uh, focus areas that, that we have, that I have on my team, is how do we continue to develop our people through training to make sure they stay relevant? Love it. Love it. That's so awesome. Wow. And speaking of just your time at BCG, just in general, I mean, you had a phenomenal career journey. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through that and maybe talk about maybe what stands out for you as maybe a defining moment that helped you really shape and form your war. So talk a little bit about your career journey, if you don't mind. Sure. So I think it all started at graduate school. I did my doctoral thesis in electrical engineering at the University of Michigan. And my focus was in wireless integrated microsystems. So that's the things in the internet of things. I truly have believed that technology can be transformational. And I initially wanted to commercialize my research, but I knew I, I didn't know anything about business. And I certainly wasn't going to go back to school after about nearly a decade, if I include undergraduate as well. So I decided to go pursue the management consulting path and learn about business 
on the job. So I joined the Boston Consulting Group. And one of my first projects, so if we're thinking about pivotal moments, was actually working with President Obama's task force for the automotive industry. And my particular work was on analyzing the R&D value that Fiat brought to Chrysler. And we were providing recommendations to the task force on potentially whether or not to provide funds either to Chrysler, Fiat, and bail out that particular portion of the automotive industry. We had just a few weeks to do that work. And it taught me, frankly, the power of hypothesis-driven analysis and doing it with speed. Because big decisions can be made very, very quickly with as good of information as you have. And so we had to refine our hypothesis every few days. So it really just taught me how you can make big decisions off of very little information. And so from there, I think I I learned that it, it was kind of opposite what I was doing in my PhD, where it was very, very deep, lots and lots of analysis. I mean, you know, validating things to a very high degree of verification. But here we just had a hypothesis. We were testing it, refining it every few days and providing a recommendation. And I think that that really translates to the business world. Sometimes we have to make big decisions with very little information. And so always having an answer, always refining the answer, you know, what? this is my best answer at the time. If I had a little bit more time, these are the two additional things I would check and then keep going that way. And it's been really helpful in a business context. I mean, in the past year, our reality has changed so many times <laughs> that uh, I've been able to, uh, to reflect on that concept of what's my best answer today. So for after the bailout, I worked on largely enterprise technology transformation. And that's where Cisco came into the picture. Cisco was my last client at BCG. And then uh, when Chuck Robbins was announced as CEO in 2015, he asked me to join his leadership team as chief of staff. I viewed it as an incredible opportunity to transform the company and work with leaders and think about our shifting business model. So it's been an incredible journey since then. And now I'm in the customer experience organization. I lead our customer experience centers delivery team. We deliver technology, uh, technical support, professional services, managed services, customer success, and also hardware and component replacement for our team. Wow. Amazing. I want to just unpack that a little bit more. So I want to go back to your time at BCG, right? I mean, the work that you were doing was so amazing. How did you, and, and, and very impactful. I mean, how did you handle knowing that your work could affect the entire world economy, thousands of jobs, et cetera? I mean, that's a lot of weight for any person to carry. Talk about that. Well, the good news is, like you said, it was part of a bigger team. So I was certainly one person out of a, a much larger team. But it did show me that, you know, there is a lot of important decisions can be made with very little information. And there was certainly a gravity to that. So when I was doing the analysis, I actually was telling a group of uh, early and grade talent the other day, I didn't sleep for the first three days of that project because of the weight of what we were being asked to do. But then, you know, we started refining our hypotheses. We were having the best answer at the time available to the leadership. And of course, it was up to the task force, you know, ultimately to provide the president with the recommendation. We were advising the task force, but it just showed the power of a good enough answer at the time and that it's okay. (laughs) It's okay to just do your best and have a good enough answer at the time. And I, I think that that 
just is a lesson that I've applied every single day since then to any business problem that I have had to to address. Absolutely. You got to make a decision based on the data that you have in your hand today. And to your point, you adjust as needed moving forward as new information comes, as new information surfaces, right? Absolutely. Love that. And then let's go back to your first role at Cisco. I mean, that was huge. I mean, you were the first chief of staff to the CEO at Cisco. What was that like? And again, I think you came in from external. Usually what I've seen is most of the times the chief of staff roles to C-suite officers normally are filled from within because the person understands the, has grown up in the company, understands the DNA, understands the strategy from an inside out perspective. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so I was what they called an an outsider insider because I had consulted at Cisco. I was obviously familiar with the company, but I was the only person on Chuck's executive leadership team when he announced the team that was not already at Cisco. And I did have a job to challenge the status quo. (laughs) So as an outsider, part of my responsibility was to challenge the status quo and influence the leadership team and help develop and set a strategy that was going to transform the business model of the company. I would be remiss if I if I didn't say that I definitely had imposter syndrome, that nagging feeling every single day of, should I be here? And I think that it wasn't something, it, it manifested itself in one incident in particular, where I was in a meeting with the executive leadership team. We were at an offsite. We were thinking through what our strategy should be and, and the, uh, the ways to ach- achieve it. And I referred to myself in a self-deprecating way. And one of the executive leadership team members at the time, Rebecca Jacoby, who ran operations for Cisco, interrupted me, interrupted the meeting, stood up and said, do not refer to yourself that way. You have a seat at the table. You are on the executive leadership team. You're either going to take that seat or not. And, you know, she reminded me that I, that I earned my seat at the table and that I had permission from the rest of the executive leadership team to be there as well. And so that was my opportunity and I shouldn't squander it. And so even though it was, I will say, quite embarrassing in the moment, I am glad it happened because I do think back to that moment, anytime doubt kicks in, that the people around me want me to be successful because they are spending time with me. And so it is my responsibility to actually take that seat at the table and do the best job that I can. And I do deserve to be there. So that was that was a big learning, which certainly made the second <laughs> charter of, of helping define a, a strategy to transform the company a lot easier when I felt that, you know, I, I should be there. And that is, you know, th- that is what I'm being asked to do. And honestly, all of that analytical work and decision making experience that that I had from my BCG experience really came in handy. Yeah, no, I really love that story. Thanks for sharing that because I think we've all been there at one point in our careers and it's always wonderful to really kind of have an advocate, you know, someone that has your back, someone that says, no, you've earned your seat here. And more importantly, she put her credibility on the line in a good way saying, you're here, I'm here, we're equals. You know, I might've been at the company a little bit longer, but you're at this table, you've earned the seat, you've earned the right to drive impact. And let me just remind you of that. And so I, I love that support ecosystem that you had in that room to, to just make sure you knew that you, you were basically on the same ground as they were, right? Equal footing. <laughs> she was absolutely an incredible role model to me. And I try to pay that forward as well when I see others who suffer from the same self-deprecating tendencies that I used to have. I absolutely role model what she did for me, which is remind them that they have a seat at the table. 
Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about, I mean, you, you, your role has continued to expand, evolve, grow your, your remit, so to speak, and your, what you're responsible for has expanded for good reason, right? Because of who you are as a leader and just how you lead and how you build teams along the way. So talk a little bit about some of the leadership qualities that you're most proud of on your team and some things that maybe you all as a leadership team have been able to cultivate as part of your own team culture. So I think that the past year has certainly tested everyone's leadership qualities in, in different ways than, you know, what used to make you successful, I think is, is very different than what will make you successful today. And I do want to borrow from one of the fellow World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders, a woman named Belinda Parmar, who recently said that the skills that we need right now from leaders are empathy, emotional intelligence, and resilience. And that really resonated with me. So empathy, just where are your people? Do you understand where your people are in terms of their well-being? Emotional intelligence, are you self-aware? <laughs> and also aware of the, the people that you're interacting with and the, the people that you're leading. And then lastly, resilience. How do you keep going in times of challenges, adversity, and even when things have, been, have settled down? And so we're just being tested like never before, and we're learning to deal with challenges. And that is absolutely the foundation of all of my leaders on my team. I had a chance to build my current leadership team in the middle of the pandemic, and I would say that they all exude those three characteristics. We need empathy and emotional intelligence to set a vision, get everyone headed in the same direction, and give people the space to figure out how to get there. And it's it, and I'll say it's, it's different than what I think would, what I used to think would make you successful. Very, very early on, maybe my first manager role, I tried to micromanage a very, very talented person because I was thinking they've got to do things the way that I wanted them to do things. <laughs> and I, frankly, it just resulted in a subpar outcome because I just couldn't, you know, be there 100% of the time. And, and she had to keep waiting for me to give her guidance. And then one day I just thought, you know what? here's the end state that we want to get to go. And she just came up with a, a much better solution than what I would have come up with on my own. And so I reflect on that and just realizing that giving people the space to figure out, but making sure that we're all aligned on the same destination uh, does absolutely result in much more creative, wonderful solutions to get to the outcome. I love that. I love that as you were kind of talking about the empathy, emotional intelligence, and the resilience piece. I just thought about really you're talking about designing from the heart and the head uh, many times you know we've been looking at our strategies and things and not that the people component or quotient has been not considered but I think in these times as you talk about it's just important that it, in, in the crisis that we're navigating the hardest things can be the softest things and as resilient leaders we need to be tapping into the sincerity the empathy compassion, putting ourselves in the shoes of our employees, but also the shoes of our customers and the broader ecosystems and the partners that we work with, which is really what you're saying, right? Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, our number one job on on my team is our customer experience, but the only way we are going to get there is through the employee experience and employees being engaged. And we have to do that by understanding each other's experiences. I think in general, people just want to be heard. They want to be valued. They want to be acknowledged. And so leading with empathy means truly listening to them rather than just waiting for our turn to talk. 
and making sure that we're addressing the things that they care about the most. So from a customer perspective, not solving what we think are the problems, but saying, hey, customer, this is what I heard from you. Does that reflect what you believe to be the challenges? Okay, here's how we, I think we're going to tackle them. Do you agree? And our employees have to be able to have that discussion with our customers as well. And then we've got to make sure our employees are in a state where they can do that. They've got the, they are engaged. They know what the, uh, the ultimate outcome is that they're trying to achieve. And so they're also learning and hearing from our customers and providing an ultimate experience. But I think empathy makes us a better company. It makes us better at delivering our customer outcomes. And it helps our employees actually collaborate with each other so much better. I've got a, a wonderful story from the past year where in April of 2020, we had massive demand for Cisco's WebEx product. It just skyrocketed because a lot of workers ended up working from home and needed to use video conferencing technology. And so we had half a billion meeting attendees versus 160 million attendees just two months earlier, which meant more customers and more demand for support from first-time users. And so my team, the technical support team, had their demand increased significantly. And it's not like we can add talent as quickly as the demand went up. And so we actually asked, asked for help from the rest of Cisco. And we thought maybe a handful of people would step up. And we had over 1,800 volunteer engineers across the company raise their hand and say, we are going to help our fellow technical support team members and colleagues, and we want to help our customers. And they handled a full one-third of our cases for several months before returning to their day jobs. I mean, that's that's literally our pre-COVID volume that was handled by the volunteer engineers. And it's that empathy, not just with the customer and recognizing that these customers needed to be able to do their jobs, but empathy with their colleagues to say, hey, we've got to help our colleagues who are drowning in workloads and let's support them and make sure that we are delivering on the mission of the company. And that was just so empowering to see, so inspiring to see, and just shows the power of empathy. Well, I absolutely love that, right? I mean, each of your team members kind of put, they put each other first. I mean, they put the mission first and they put customers first. And that is awesome. Just the, their empathy for one another and their the resilience, right? I mean, resilience is really about how we acknowledge, respond to, and rise above chaos, right? And there was chaos all around us in a sense in terms of how our environment was really turned upside down. And not only, we couldn't no longer meet face-to-face and so leveraging the tools that we had at our disposal to be able to connect and keep business going. And so your, your team basically really just proved how they can act and respond on the other side of, the, of that disruption that was happening, right? That's amazing. It was a very powerful team building event that was a global team of thousands of engineers. Wow. You know, I've read the quote, this is resilience is not a destination, it's a way of being. And so it's clear to me that, you know, your organization absolutely was focused on becoming an even more resilient organization through the crisis that we've endured and even beyond that, right? To your point, transforming the organization, the culture, your attitudes, your belief, your ability to be agile and just kind of breaking through the structures that might have been in place in the past based on the way of doing business and now putting new structures in place that really changed your DNA 
right? To be able to recover and respond very quickly to your customers' needs. I mean, I know you must be proud of your team for sure. I'm really proud of my team. And I would say, I, I don't know if it changed their, the DNA as much as it actually unleashed the potential of the organization. We had so much innovation going on that was, I would say, hindered by bureaucracy and processes and let's pilot and test and iterate and all of that. And I think that the, the urgency of what we had to go through with the additional volume with COVID actually caused us to say, you know what, unleash all of the innovation. Let's just try it all because we're going to learn very quickly if it's working or not. And it was incredibly empowering for the team. There were several innovations that we launched that are currently driving massive customer satisfaction growth for us. We have some innovations that we release. We measure customer satisfaction for every single transaction we have with our customers. And some of our innovations have a customer satisfaction rate of 98% out of 100, which is incredible. And then some just didn't work, but we learned very quickly. And that was really empowering for the organization because they got to test their innovation out there. They, they saw that we can scale their innovation. And we've really moved from an innovation process that takes multiple months to now something that we can do in a significantly faster time frame. We measure it. And we've got everyone marching towards that same goal of making sure that we are delivering the most excellent customer experience and a very high customer satisfaction rate. So it's, it's really, I think, unleashed what was already in the organization and just sped up the pace. I love it. I love it. Wow, that's awesome. Well, listen, I know I could kind of dive into a whole lot more and talk to you all day. I mean, but what I'm taking away is, I mean, just your, your leadership, the leadership of the folks on your team. And really just to your point, unleashing the potential of the organization to even innovate and scale much faster in, in the face of uncertainty in terms of the environment. And to your point, it's, it was already in the DNA, for lack of a better term, right? We just unleashed it even more. And I love that. Any other thoughts that you want to share with the audience really around uh, the topic of kind of unleashing resiliency? And I mean, I know you said you became a listening organization. You really um, were learning at a more rapid pace to your point to drive innovations in the market more at a faster pace. Anything else you want to share with the audience before I kind of pop into a fun lightning round of questions? Yeah, one thing I'll share that we're doing at Cisco that I find to be really powerful as it relates to empathy is something that we call proximity meetings. And it's based on Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Institute. And the idea is that if you get proximate to a problem, you'll feel compelled to to solve it because you'll understand it. And so as part of the proximity meeting initiative, leaders meet with several individuals per quarter who are different from them. That's the only requirement is different from you, be that race, gender, ethnicity, something else that's different. And the goal is truly to just understand what it is like for them. What is their story? So kind of when you were asking me, what's my story? That's usually the first question I ask is, what's your story? What got you here? And these meetings really help build bridges. Not only do they help us understand where the other person is is coming from, but it actually also provides a lot of areas where we are more alike than different. And that empathy makes the leaders better supporters, better representatives of the company. It helps us do our jobs better by understanding our people better. And, you know, there's plenty of data to support 
that inclusive teams make better decisions. They're more likely, gender diverse companies are more likely to outperform others. Ethnically diverse companies are more likely to outperform others. But I think at the root of how to get there is, is this empathy piece. And so we're really continuing on with the proximity meetings. We started this work a, over a year ago, I believe, but it's been something that's been really empowering for me, for my leadership team. And I would, I would speak more broadly to the leaders at Cisco. I love that. To your point, all signs point to our willingness to get to know our neighbor, so to speak, and in a more intimate way, it's going to yield a better outcome for the community, right? That you live in, whatever that may be. And so I love that you guys are doing that across Cisco. Thanks for that, sharing that best practice in BKM, because I'm going to take it forward for myself as well. <laughs> well, like I said, I could talk to you all day, Ruben. We, we often do just chat up quite often. So I just want to kind of move to a fun lighting round of questions. I'll just kind of ask you a few questions and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. So what's your favorite food? Green grapes. Really? Okay. I like it. Green grapes. Okay. If you have a guilty pleasure, what would that be? Oh gosh. My other favorite food, which is cookies and ice cream. Okay. <laughs> yep. Check on that one too. All right. And I know you're an avid reader. So maybe talk about maybe what's your favorite book or a book you're reading right now? So I'm always listening to multiple books at the same time. So I just finished Think Again by Adam Grant, which I thought was a phenomenal way to rethink about how to to retrain yourself and constantly open your mind. He's also a, a, a fellow World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. Another book that I recently finished that I love is Let Your Mind Run by Dina Castor. She's a marathon runner and an Olympic medalist. Really incredible story of resilience and perseverance and persistence. I will say probably my favorite business book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by uh, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz. And it's just his experience in starting a company and, and the tough decisions leaders have to make. And a lot of them are people focused. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Those are all three great books. Thank you for that. And no, I know you don't have a whole lot of time to watch TV, but if you do, is there something on Netflix that really kind of has you dialed in maybe that you like to watch? So I am a fan of Head Lasso, which I think is on Apple TV, but that was a really great show, funny show that was just kind of a good source of levity at a very serious time for us. Absolutely. We all need a good laugh. I'm telling you, right? <laughs> Laughter is good for the soul. And I know you and your honey are world travelers. And so if you get an opportunity to travel again, what's first on the list? What would you put your, uh, your dot on the map for where you're heading to next? You know, it's really funny to go from 90% travel, obviously much of that due to business to zero, but I would really like to travel to Iceland. That was on our bucket list for a summer trip. We had been there in the winter before, and I'd love to go back there in the summer. But honestly, at this point, I'd, I'd go anywhere. Right. <laughs> well, that's right. I'm telling you, just out of the house, off the lockdown. <laughs> yep. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure talking to you as always, my friend. So I can't thank you enough. Really want to say we appreciate you uh, sharing on this platform. And I know it's just going to resonate with the audience. So thank you so much, Ruba. Thank you, Lakeisha. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time.